All right, would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 32 this morning in a message that's called Put Off and Put On. And you'll probably uh, pick up right away where that comes from. I'd like to read this passage of Scripture for us, and I'm going to actually start reading at verse 22, the passage we were looking at last week to tie these two together. Ephesians 4, begin at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word once again. How practical, how clear, how direct it is in speaking to our life situation. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through this this day where there are areas where we need to pay attention, I pray that you would speak very clearly to our hearts this morning. Help us to obey what you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the metaphors or figures of speech that Paul uses here to describe the uh, putting off the old way of life is to use these terms put off and put on. And they were the same words that you would use uh, if you were describing taking off a garment of clothing. In fact, in the early church, one of the ways that they illustrated this change of life was during a person's baptism service. If an individual was being baptized, when they came to that water's edge, they would have them lay aside their old outer garment, a symbol of laying aside the old way of life. And then after they had been baptized, when they came out of the water, they would put on a new or a clean outer garment that symbolized their commitment to live a new life, to live for Christ. Now, we don't wear uh, robes in quite the same way that they did or outer garments, but I think one thing we probably all can relate to are blue jeans. That's why I put that up there as kind of an illustration of it. In fact, I brought in a couple pairs here. I'm sure all of us in our closet or drawer have, you know, an older pair of blue jeans. I mean, I have one here that's been worn for a long time. It's kind of stretched out, you know, fits my body and my bony knees here the way it looks like. And it, uh, you know, has some grass stains on it. It's worn around the knees and all of that. And, and there just comes a time when you got to throw them away. When, they, when you lay them aside. Now, I know what's funny about this is that there are some people who pay good money for jeans that look a little worn or holes in them or things like that, you know, just, and it's 
true, too, that some people like the old way of life and don't really want to change because that's comfortable to them. That's all that they've known in their life. And when it comes to, you know, a new pair of jeans, sometimes they can be a little stiff. I mean, they may look nice. You can tell that they're new, but sometimes they may be a little stiff. You got to wear them a while to where it feels comfortable and all of that. And sometimes when a person comes to know Christ, the new life is like that. It's different. There's a change that's taken place in your heart and your attitude and your values, but it can be an adjustment. And so Paul is writing to people here in the Ephesians church that have come out of a pagan background, old ways of doing things, old habits and actions. And what he does in this passage that we're going to look at is he gets very specific about the change that has taken place in our life. Uh, We see from other passages where Paul has written, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, he tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and new has come. That if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you've been born again and you have been given a new nature in Christ. But sometimes we slip into old habits, old ways of doing, old thoughts, and we sin. And God calls us to put to death those things that are part of that old nature. In Romans 8, for example, he says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So here Paul addresses, it's not just a matter of simply like casually putting things off, But where there is sin in our life, it needs to be put to death. Put it to death. And he is writing to Christians when he states those words. So what does it look like for us to put off the old and to put on the new? Well, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, he's going to give us five examples, and that's really what they are. It's not an exhaustive list, but he's going to touch on five areas common Uh, that are areas that need to change in our life. And also, what you're going to see is that they are each rooted in doctrine. He gives a reason why we are to do each of these things. It relates to biblical teaching and other passages as well. But the practical is rooted again in sound doctrine, in theology. And they are all stated in a negative, but there's also a positive given. So there's something we're to put off, there is something we are to put on. And that's because holiness is more than just turning from sin. Holiness is also saying yes to Christ and being obedient to the things that he asks us to do. So let's take a look as we walk through this list that Paul touches on today. He tells us, first of all, that we are to put off lying and put on truth-telling. And we see that in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. When he talks about putting off falsehood, it's more than a command to just stop lying. I mean, that's covered. We're not to lie to one another. But it also means stop pretending to be something we are not. Stop pretending to be something that you and I are not. And sometimes we can be very good at that. Sometimes people put on a mask, you know, you ask them, how are they doing? Everything's fine or it's good when it's really not. 
Or sometimes people pretend to be more spiritual than they really are. We all have struggles. We all have areas in our life that we are wrestling with. And God is saying that the church should be characterized by honesty and openness. This should be a safe place where you can be real. And you can share what's going on in your life. And it doesn't mean that we do that, say, in the middle of a worship service. It may be in that small group with people we've gotten to know. It may be in a discipleship relationship with one or two others where you are building that friendship. It may be a a prayer triplet where you have people that you're praying with and you share what's going on in your life and you ask them to pray for you. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. And notice how he roots this command in doctrine. He says we are to do this because we are members of one body. We belong to one another. We are connected to one another. And if you think about that in terms of the human body, I mean, if the eye looks ahead and it sees danger, it doesn't deceive the hand or the foot. You know, if the eye looks and sees that the stove is on and the burner's hot, it doesn't deceive the hand to think I can just put my hand down on that. The eye warns the hand not to do that. And in the same way in the body of Christ, We are so connected to one another that we are to look out for one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We're to be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we see a brother going astray and there is something that we can do to warn them, we do that. We love, we encourage, we help one another. And truth-telling is absolutely necessary for trust in the church. It is true for trust in working relationships at work, in the home, and family, but it is absolutely necessary in the church. If we are going to be able to depend upon one another, we need to tell the truth and trust one another. You know, we've seen in the news recently the story of Brian Williams, uh, the news anchor for the NBC Nightly News. Since 2004, uh, that network's news has been the top-rated news broadcast on TV, and Brian Williams has been a significant part of that. And then comes this story that he embellished his account of a helicopter ride in the Iraq War. And now people are going through everything he said with a fine-tooth comb and looking at other things and questioning as he told the truth here or there. And that's pretty rough, isn't it? I mean, if you're a news anchor, you really want to be able to trust that what they are saying to you is the truth if you're going to believe what they're saying, and here now that's being questioned. But he's not the only one who's done that. Some of you may know the name Joseph Ellis. He's a best-selling author. Uh, He's a historian. He's written a lot of books. I've read some of them on the founding fathers or uh, founding brothers. And he has been very popular in that. He's won Pulitzer Prize, National Book Awards. But what's interesting in his life, too, had kind of the same issue come up. Uh, He taught history at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And he was telling about his time in the Vietnam War, and he was sharing some of his stories that were being told over and over again. He said he was a platoon leader with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam. 
but someone who knew the truth about Ellis tipped off the news who began to investigate what he was saying, and it founds out that during the Vietnam War, he hadn't been in the jungles of Southeast Asia. He was teaching history at West Point. And somehow he had embellished these stories and told about himself. And you kind of wonder, and in fact, people were looking at that and wondering why someone so accomplished would embellish his past. It seems that success and truthfulness don't always go hand in hand. And I would guess that there are times maybe in your life, I know in my life, where I've got myself... And, and wanted to present myself in the best light that I could. And so I've maybe either tried to minimize something that I have done, or when somebody else said something, I just didn't reply. Because there is this tendency in all of us to want to make ourselves look better than we really are. And God is calling for us to be honest about our sin, honest about who we are, and to be open with one another in our prayers. Put off falsehood. When we lie, we are like Satan, the father of lies. When we tell the truth, we are like our Father in heaven. Secondly, he calls us to put off unrighteous anger and to put on righteous anger instead. Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Anger is not the problem. It's the kind of anger that's the problem. I mean, righteous anger is a holy anger at sin or injustice or the evil in our world. If you can look at sin in our world and not be upset by that, then that is a problem. Something's wrong. I mean, when we see injustice or abuse or crimes or things that are committed, there should be that anger in us that says that that is not right or this needs to stop. That holy anger can actually spur us on to good things that we might do to bring change in our world. Unrighteous anger is self-centered. It's about me. It's a desire to get back at someone or to get even or to keep score or to seek revenge or those kind of things. It's not uh, focusing on the Lord and his character and reputation. It's really thinking more about me. And Paul says we are to deal with our anger quickly. He said in verse 26, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. You know, and that doesn't mean that if you're an Eskimo living in the North Pole that you can wait six months to deal with your anger. You know, people are always looking for loopholes on these things. No, it means deal with it quickly. Don't let your anger fester. Even if it's a righteous anger, don't let it fester and stew and brood because when we do, we give the devil a foothold in our life. And that word foothold is like a, a beachhead. It's like what happened at Normandy when the Allied forces broke Hitler's Atlantic Wall. They established a beachhead from which they could carry out their operations. And Satan wants to do that in your life. And one of the best ways that he can do that is through anger that leads to bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness or all other kinds of sins that war against your spirit and destroy your fellowship with others, and it hurts your relationship with God. Put it off and bring it to the cross. 
He also talks thirdly about put off stealing and put on working and giving instead. And what we see in this passage is that there were people in the church in Ephesus who thought that stealing was okay. It was just the way it was. I mean, there's people in our world who think of stealing as normal. It becomes a way of life, you know? It's you work the system. Uh, You lie on your taxes. You cheat your neighbor. You do whatever you can to take advantage of someone or something else until you get caught and you say, oh, I didn't know that. I I didn't know that. And it's deny, deny, deny. I think about all the crimes that are committed using the Internet today, or the email scams, or the phishing, or the things where people are trying to take advantage of other people. And it's common. And sometimes don't you just wonder if, if... People are working that hard, you know, to steal. If they just put those gifts to a better use, they could actually earn a living. And that's what Paul is saying. Stealing was part of the Greco-Roman world too. And he said, you must steal no longer. Stop it. And instead, the one who is stealing must work with his hands, doing something useful that he may have something to share with those in need. From now on, you need to work to provide for yourself and your family. But even more than that, you must share with those in need. Instead of being a taker, the Bible says, be a giver. Be a giver. Be a person who is generous and kind. And that challenges our assumptions about wealth. I mean, how much is enough? How much do we really need? And it challenges when we think even about saving up for retirement, how much is enough in that area? What's what's being wise and prudent for the future and what's being excessive? Those are hard to answer, but I mean, that's something I think we need to bring before the Lord and ask those questions and make sure that our trust is in him. How much should we give out of our income? Is a tithe what God wants us to do, or is it more at times? Tithes and offerings that he wants us to do in terms of our giving. How much is enough? When we look at the scripture in 2 Corinthians 8, we see how the Macedonian churches gave in a situation where they were in extreme poverty. But because of their joy in the Lord and what he had done in their life, when they heard about a need in Jerusalem, they wanted to help with the famine that was going on there. And so out of their poverty even, they gave to help someone else who was a brother or sister in Christ. Wow. That was sacrificial. And the word of God challenges us also when it says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. When we give back to the Lord to help others, it's more than obedience. We are imitating our Father, who is a generous and giving God. In Charleston, Missouri, it's interesting, there's a correctional institute that's trying to apply this principle, put this into action, teaching people to be givers instead of takers. And the way that they're doing it is that they have a six-acre vegetable garden that they have these inmates work on, and all of the vegetables go to the local food shelf and to help those who are in need in their community. And that change in focus 
to work with their hands, to even do some labor and learn some skills and all of those things and realizing that this is going to help, say, the elderly or families in needs, has had a change in their thinking. One of the inmates said, you know, this is almost like being free here. I like knowing that I'm giving to help others. That's what Paul is saying. That those who have been stealing should steal no longer, but should give. Work with their hands so they have something to give to others. Another interesting story this week that illustrates uh, giving, if you will. Uh, I am not advocating playing the lottery at all, uh, but it was interesting. And one of the winners this week on the lottery uh, was a woman named Marie Holmes, a black woman who's a single mom, four children. Uh, She recently had to quit her job at Walmart and McDonald's trying to do those two jobs because one of her children has cerebral palsy. And she went to stay at home. Well, she was one of those who won in the lottery this week, meaning, you know, it was divided up three ways, I think, or something like that. And anyway, when she was being asked about what she was going to do with her money, she said, the very first thing I'm going to do is give a tithe to my church because I wouldn't have any of this without the Lord. And she was just wanting to give back out of what she had won. Now, that's something you don't hear as often in those stories. But here's a woman who was asking God to provide. He did it in an unusual way in her case, and she wants to give back to the Lord. Fourthly, the Scripture says, put off corrupt talk and put on wholesome talk. And we see that in verses 29 and 30. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. And when he talks about unwholesome talk here, it's literally rotten speech. I mean, the word unwholesome is the kind of word you would use to describe rotten vegetables or rotten fruit, fruit that's spoiled, and it's there maybe in a bag or next to others, and if you don't get it out quick, it's going to cause others to spoil as well. That's the effect that unwholesome speech can have upon other people. I mean, it just, uh, it spreads. It's bad, and it affects others. Uh, It tears down. It divides. Uh, it spreads slander and gossip. It discourages and destroys. I mean, when, if you listen to it, it makes you feel dirty or it makes you feel discouraged by what you are hearing as well. And he's saying it shouldn't have any part in our life as Christians. Instead, there should be wholesome speech. And wholesome speech is the kind that thinks about what the other person needs. It builds up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That our speech isn't so I can blow something off and say what I want to say, and then I'm going to feel better afterwards because, boy, I got that out there and let the pieces be whatever they are. No. This is thinking about how your speech is going to affect someone else. And speaking in a word or in a way that's going to help them. There are times when we do have to correct, but we speak the truth in love. There are times when we do have to confront, but again, we do that in a way that is sensitive to the other person's needs. It's thinking before we speak 
and it's weighing our words carefully. Now, there's an interesting story I ran across about Dr. Paul Rees. And I, I never knew Paul Rees. He was before my time, but his stories were legendary. Some of you uh, may have known him. He served as a pastor at First Covenant Church in Minneapolis for 20 years from 1938 to 1958. And then after that, he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Well, in 2011, Gordon McDonald interviewed Paul and Edith Rees. And they were in their 90s at that point. And McDonald asked them if they still fought after 60-plus years of marriage. You guys ever, you still have an argument or you ever still fight once in a while <laughs> at that age? And, and he said, oh, sure we do. He said, yesterday morning was a case in point. And he went on to describe this story. He said, Edith and I were in our car and she was driving and she failed to stop at a stop sign, and it scared me half to death. <laughs> so what did you do, McDonald asked. He said, well, I've loved Edith for all of these years, and I've learned how to say hard things to her. But I must be careful, because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke to her harshly. And today, when she hears a manly voice speak in anger, even my voice, she is deeply, deeply hurt. But Paul, McDonald said, Edith is 90 years old. Are you telling me that she remembers a harsh voice that many years ago? She remembers that voice more than ever, Reese said. And McDonald asked, so how do you handle a driving situation like that from the other day? Ah, uh, he said, I simply said, Edith, darling, after we've had our nap this afternoon, I want to discuss a thought I have for you. And when the nap was over, I did. I was calm, she was ready to listen, and we solved our little problem. McDonald concluded, these are the words of a man who has learned that conflict is necessary, can be productive, but it must be managed with wisdom and grace. By the time I reach 90, I hope to be just like him. What a, a good story of someone who is sensitively weighing their words and understanding the needs of the other person, even when it comes to confronting. We need to watch our words in the body of Christ. We need to watch it in our homes or with our children in the way that we correct and discipline them even, that our words would be honoring to Christ. And finally, the fifth example that he uses here is that we are to put off bitterness and rage and to put on kindness and forgiveness instead. Look at verses 31 and 32. Oh, wait, I noticed I missed one thing here. Verse 30. Again, when he talks about wholesome speech, the reason that we are to speak that way is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The reason that we are to be careful with our words is, again, theologically grounded. It's because the Holy Spirit is hearing every conversation. He's present in our heart, present in our life, and we want to honor him. And when we sin, when we disobey, when we speak harshly, the Holy Spirit is grieved. All right, now I'm going to move on. The fifth point, put off bitterness and rage. Look at verses 31 and 32. 
He says, get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, all brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Get rid of all bitterness. Bitterness is things like resentment or keeping track of wrongs, keeping a record of offenses that have been committed against you, kind of like keeping scores so you can use it at the next argument that you have. Get rid of all of that. Rage, that's uncontrolled, outbursts of anger. There's no place for that in the Christian life. Uh, when he talks about anger here, he is referring to that unrighteous, self-centered anger. When he talks about brawling, that's physical violence, hitting, pushing, shoving, attacking someone in that way, or slander, abusive and injurious speech, malice is hatred, ill will, wishing that something bad happens to the other person. All of those thoughts are from the evil one. They're not from God. And God says, Put them away. Get rid of them all. And what strikes me in this is that he is writing to Christians. I mean, he's talking to the church here. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church, to us. And saying, if those things are in your life, if you're struggling with bitterness, if you are struggling with malice or ill feelings towards someone, if you are struggling with slander and, and uh, speaking poorly or evilly about someone else, you need to deal with that. We all do. And we need to bring it to the cross and ask God for forgiveness. We need to go to our brother or sister where we have those feelings and be reconciled in as far as possible on your part. Live at peace with all men and go and, and be reconciled to your brother. And that's why he goes on to say that we are to put on instead. We are to replace them with things like kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Kindness is shown both in our words and in our actions. Compassion is tenderness or understanding. It's really that ability to put yourself in the other person's place and maybe look at the situation through their eyes or to think about their circumstances and how it may be different than yours. And forgiveness, well, that's keeping no record of wrongs. That's letting go of the desire to get even. That's bringing it to the cross and forgiving just as he has forgiven us. And that is the theological grounding of this instruction, that we are to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How did God forgive us? Totally, completely, unconditionally. He didn't say you're going to have to do this and this and this and this first and then maybe I'll think about forgiving you. He said, confess your sins. Come to Jesus. Turn to him, and you'll find forgiveness for your sins and healing for your soul. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing, amazing grace. But it is so necessary in our relationships, and it is necessary in the body of Christ that we should be a family that loves and forgives one another. Back in the days when D.L. Moody was traveling with Ira Sankey and he was an evangelist, he shared about one church he went to where he had been invited to give a series of revival meetings. He preached for a whole week. Nothing happened. 
No one converted. It was like preaching to stone hearts, and he, he was puzzled by all of this. And finally, uh, after preaching for a week, he said to the congregation who was gathered, he said, perhaps there is someone here who is harboring unconfessed sin, who is harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in their heart. And what happened was that the chairman of that crusade, a man who had helped with all of the planning of the events, got up and he left the sanctuary in front of everyone. The arrow had hit its mark. And he went and he met the man that he was angry and upset with and he confessed his sin and he asked for forgiveness. And there was a change that took place in the atmosphere of those meetings. The next night when Moody preached, the inquiry room was packed with people who wanted to come to know Christ. What Paul is saying here is that we are to be forgiving of each other just as in Christ God has forgiven us. How does he forgive? Totally, unconditionally, completely. And God says, go and do likewise. Go and do the very same. Well, when we look at these five things, they are pretty practical, aren't they? There's probably an area I've touched on that in your life you resonate with. And I will be honest about it that there are times when change comes slowly. There are some things that can change very quickly in our life when we come to know Christ. And some things that it just seems to be a daily walk of faith. Okay, i got to deal with this today and tomorrow and the next day. And it's a lifelong thing to take our attitudes to the cross or to take our thoughts to the cross and lay them at his feet. It's a choice we must make every day to put off the old and to put on the new. But when we do that, we find that we grow in grace and we experience the pleasure of God in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks to us tenderly, who invites us to come before you with our sin and to be honest about that, who is merciful and forgiving, and who by your Holy Spirit and by your word instruct us in how we are to live and give us the power to do that. So, Lord, I just pray, whatever area that we may have taken to heart today as we were listening to this, Father, I pray that you would do your work of grace in us today, that we might live as your children in this world. Amen.